Be patient. <laughs> be steadfast. Be faithful. This morning we're looking at Romans chapter 4, the last section of it. And we're going to be taking a break in the book of Romans for the summer. Travis will be back next week to give us two sermons. And then I'll preach in John. And then we're going to begin a study in the book of Psalms for the summer. And then we'll return to chapter 5, which is actually a great break in the book of Romans, again in the fall. So this morning we're going to be looking at Abraham's act of faith, which trusts the character of the Lord, and the content of his faith, which trusts the promise of the Lord. In this passage we're going to see that we're looking at in, in Romans 4, 13 to 25, that Abraham places his entire trust in the prophetic word from God that promises the birth of an heir to him from his dead body. Abraham doesn't trust the promise of the Lord because he sees all that the promise is involved in, or how far it is out in front of him. He trusts the promise because he trusts God's goodwill towards him, which he recognizes in the character of the Lord. When Abraham believes God's word and trusts the character of the one promising this heir, God reckons or accounts, imputes, or declares that Abraham's faith, this is important, is equivalent to meeting all of God's moral demands that God makes in his law. All the perfection that God's holy law requires of Abraham has now been graciously transferred to Abraham's account by grace. And I just want to clarify a couple of things about what that looks like, that infusion of righteousness. Or, I'm sorry, the imputation of righteousness. So God actually doesn't infuse righteousness into Abraham. That would be a Roman Catholic position. He doesn't actually make Abraham righteous when he justifies him. He declares that he is righteous. And at no time in the justification process for anyone do we actually become righteous in justification. The righteousness that is imputed to us when we believe God is something that's outside of us that God gives us freely by grace. It's as if God looks at Abraham and takes his own divine righteousness and puts it into the bank account of Abraham because Abraham believed God. And at no time subsequent to that declaration that Abraham is now righteous, does God ever take away any of that righteousness because of Abraham's sin? In fact, the entire time that Abraham is justified and seen as righteous before God, he remains a sinner. And Abraham remaining justified before God is never based on Abraham's works or his ability to keep the law after he is justified. At no time does Abraham's justification depend on Abraham's ability to keep the law. And so Abraham here serves as a model for our faith 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God credits our faith in Christ as meeting all the demands of God's righteousness. So I want to look at five important points this morning as a way of sort of reminding us what we've been looking at in Romans. And I want to look at two passages, uh, two reminders for the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. I need a little water. Okay, so the first reminder, I want to remind you about the difference between law and gospel. Both the law and the gospel are found in the Old and the New Testaments. I I said both the law... (laughs) That doesn't happen to really, really good preachers, by the way. I am going to get beyond this. (laughs) So the law is a revelation of God's will in the form of command or prohibition. If God says you shall not do this, you will not do this, you must not do that, or you shall do this, you must do this, you will do that, that is law. And the gospel in another sense, completely embraces everything that pertains to the work of God where he's bringing us back into the fold of a relationship with him and that proclaims the seeking and redeeming love of God in Christ Jesus. And so the law then is first in the order of teaching. That's why the law is in the Old Testament first and then the gospel is expressed in the New Testament. And the reason for that is If you don't know what the standard of right is, you can't understand that you aren't conforming to it. You can't have any real knowledge of all that God has done for us in Christ if you don't understand what he has required of us in the law. And that's why it's very important to always express the law to people when we're talking to them about Christ so they understand what is expected of them and how they cannot meet that righteous demand. The second reminder is of what the law and the gospel do. The law declares the rule of God's will. The gospel declares God's graciousness to us. The law speaks of our duty, what we must do. The gospel tells of God's love for us. The law ministers death, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, and the gospel brings life through the Spirit. The law works wrath, we're going to look at this morning. The gospel results in love. So the law calls us to doing. The gospel calls us to believing. Where the the law demands, the gospel gives. Where the law threatens, the gospel promises. Where the law condemns, the gospel justifies. Where the law curses, the gospel blesses. The law reveals our sin nature, and the gospel reveals the grace of God toward sinners. I want to show you a little bit on the next slide. We're not going to spend time looking at it. But you see, I want you to see one thing here, that from 13 to 18, Paul only uses the word, the promise. He never says, the promises. You see, three times in that section right there. So we'll pick it up 
at Romans 4.19, which is the basis of our passage. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the third reminder I want to make this morning is that there, there is a single promise of God, and it's recognized by a constellation of terms. You notice that God only uses the word the promise. He never says the promises. And there are about 40 passages in the New Testament that speak of the one single plan or the development of that plan from Genesis all the way through all of the New Testament. And so in a sense, all the patriarchs are not only receiving the promise, but they're waiting for it out ahead of them as well. And these are some of the things that were promised. Travis mentioned a couple of them last week, just as a matter of review. So one of the things that was promised in this constellation of terms was material blessings. So we saw that the flocks and the herds were increased in great wealth. There's an innumerable offspring that would become the nation of Israel. The, the land of milk and honey in Canaan. The promise included deliverance from bondage by the Egyptians. It promised a kingdom ruled by a man of God's choosing where Travis read in 2 Samuel 7. But way out ahead in the future, God was promising much, much more than that. He was promising the Holy Spirit and the Messiah, the forgiveness of sin, a believing people called the church, and a heavenly and external existence with God in the future. All of these are a part of the promise, but the New Testament specifically refers to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. So the fourth reminder is that the single promise of God is at the heart of all Old Testament teaching. Probably the most important part of that is that the attestation in the New Testament of the ultimate fulfillment coming not only in Jesus, but in the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's through the work of Jesus that God would ultimately fulfill his promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, when he said, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so God's ultimate blessing to the world came in the person from Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And that's why Matthew begins in his gospel, in the chronology, the very first verse says that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, and Jesus is 42 generations removed from Abraham. There's lots of sections in the New Testament that speak to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment.
You'll remember one of the most famous ones, of course, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. And he says to the two men, O foolish ones, in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he said, These are the words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You remember in Acts 2.37, when right after Pentecost, Peter is explaining to the Jews that are there that they were responsible for crucifying Christ. And when they realized it, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And in 2.38, Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. In Acts 7.52, Stephen, before he stoned, is reciting in 53 verses the whole history of the Old Testament, beginning with the God of glory appearing to our father Abraham. And finally, he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. In Acts 10.43, Peter explains that the Jews were responsible for crucifying Christ. And he says, to him, Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And there's more even, too, in Acts 26, but I won't go there right now. What's important about this is that this promise that was made to Abraham is at the heart of all Old Testament teaching. It's, you know, Jesus is the center of all the teaching in the scriptures. There was only one promise, and it's a single plan of God articulated way back in Genesis to bless and benefit one man, Abraham, and through him to ultimately bless the whole world in the life and resurrection of Jesus. So I want to move on to a a different kind of section here now, and I want to give you a reminder of the single promise, why it can't be obtained by law-keeping. Do you have that up there? Okay, this is... Really a critical idea, folks. I'm going to read it the way it is in the original, okay? For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not fulfilled through law, but through righteousness that comes by faith. For if they become heirs by law, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. For Law brings wrath, because where there is no law, there is no transgression either. And I'm showing you these words as being struck through, and I'm going to explain to you why it makes a difference 
when we have the word the, the definite article, and why we don't have it. Just like in many places in Romans, Paul is saying that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the idea of law, apart from the notion of law, apart from law in general. The righteousness of God has been revealed without the help of law, without obedience to law. The notion of law doesn't participate or cooperate in this new righteousness simply because it is law. Remember back in Romans 3.20, when we were there, Paul was talking about the same thing. He said, but now righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. Although the law, and in this case he does have it there because he's talking about the first five books of the New Testament, said, although the law, the Pentateuch, and the prophets bear witness to Christ, to God's righteousness, a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what, what Paul has been expounding in the book of Romans is that this revelation now is a, is a category of righteousness by divine origin in opposition to the kind of righteousness that comes from human works. This righteousness, the declared righteousness, which is imputed to our account, is granted from faith, not because of anything we've done or anything we've merited, but because the object of faith is Jesus Christ. So Paul's meaning then is the promise has nothing to do with law. Nothing to do with law. Absolutely nothing to do with law. It has only to do with grace. And so as Travis commented, if therefore the inheritance of the promise was supposed to be hanging on the condition of obeying the law, then no one would ever be able to obtain the promise. Because it's impossible to keep the law in the terms in which it was given, which is perfectly. For no law, for by law no flesh living can be justified. The promise fails if it be by law, for law works Wrath, Paul says. So the sixth idea here is the reason righteousness can't be obtained by law-keeping is that law-keepers are under the curse of the law. This is a huge reason for why obedience to the law could never work to obtain the righteousness that God is giving us. This righteousness can't have anything to do with law because literally law works out wrath. Law causes men to be the subjects of wrath. Law causes men to be condemned instead of causing them to be righteous by supposedly keeping the law. And where there is no law, there is no sin. Now I've got a little cartoon illustration to show you. Here's a guy, he's standing at a crosswalk with his wife, okay? And Behind him and to the left is, is, a, is a sign that depicts the law. It says, in this area right here, absolutely no machete juggling. And it's not as if he's a machete juggler and wants to do it. He just looks at his wife and he says, I don't know why I feel like juggling machetes. <laughs> this is really the heart of the response of the human nature to law. Now, Paul further explains this a little bit in chapter 7, which we'll get to in the fall, but I just want to touch on this idea here. He says, I would not have known sin except through law. 
For indeed, I would not have known what it means to desire something belonging to someone else if the law, the Ten Commandments, had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. Sin produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive, and I died. Again, the nutshell I said earlier, if the standard of right is not known, you can't understand that you're not conforming to it. But you also have to understand that conforming to it means conforming to it absolutely perfectly, which is why the promise could never be based on law. Because no one can keep it absolutely perfectly which is exactly what Jesus was describing in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, look, it's not this fact that if you're going to tell me you've never committed adultery, that's wonderful, but you haven't kept the law. The law says if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed it. If you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him. That's Where do you think murder comes from? It comes from hatred. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was teaching that there's a true righteousness which is much beyond law-keeping, because righteousness can't be had by keeping the law. The law has no creative power to make the carnal spiritual. It can't change an unrighteous heart into a righteous one. The purpose of the law is rather to aggravate the evil. It multiplies offenses like we saw in the cartoon. The law exposes the disease of sin within us. It stimulates and stirs it up, but it provides no remedy for it because the remedy is found only in Christ. There's a great little illustration I want to give you. I don't know if you know who John Bunyan was, but he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And there's an interesting chapter in there where it's called um, The Story of the Dusty Parlor. And in this story, there is a man called Interpreter, and he's taking around this new Christian, and he's describing to him, he's interpreting for him what the Scriptures mean and how we should understand God and understand the Scriptures. And in this section, there's a short little section. It says, Then Interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because it had never been swept. And after, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about, the Christian almost became choked by it. Then said the interpreter to a damsel that stood by, bring some water and sprinkle the room. And after she had done it, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. And then Christian looked at the interpreter and said, what does this mean? And the interpreter answered, This parlor is the heart of a man that has never been sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have been defiled within the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. But she that brought the water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now you see that as soon as the law began to sweep, the dust flew about and the room could not be cleansed by the law. And you were almost choked by it. 
This is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin by its supposed working, it revives it. It puts strength into it. It increases it in the soul. Even as it discovers and forbids sin, listen, (laughs) even as law discovers and forbids sin, it stirs it up within us. For it does not give the power to subdue it. Again, you saw the damsel sprinkle the room with water, after which it was cleansed with pleasure. This is to show you that when the gospel comes in, the sweet and precious influences that come to the heart then, even as you saw the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the soul made clean through its faith and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. What a great illustration. That's just fabulous. So, one of the things we need to be thinking about then is that the law is able to describe the sins of human nature, but rather than serving as a roadmap to help us get around them and avoid them, the law turns into the temptation to sin. Folks, I, I can't tell you how important it is to know the distinction between the purpose of the law and the purpose of grace. Several years ago, my wife and I invited two young Mormon elders in their teens into our house. And before they even got started, I said, could you guys just share with me what the gospel is? And one of the young guys reached into his backpack and he pulled out a whole bunch of cards and he held the first card up and the other guy immediately went into his Joe Smith spiel. I said, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. That's fine. I just want you to tell me what the gospel is. And he pulled out the second card and he started to tell me about the um, the golden plates and I said listen I just want you to tell me don't get out of the missionary mode for a second just talk to me and tell me what the gospel is well I must have done this four or five times before one of the young guys in frustration looked at me and he said there's no salvation without obedience and I went well that is the distinction to define the gospel folks in terms of obedience, is to define it in terms of law-keeping, which is the whole point of the book of Romans. Law-keeping doesn't work because you can't ever keep it perfectly. That's what's required. Perfect obedience. It's not in terms in which it was actually given. It's given in terms of grace. And so the whole history of Christ could aptly be described as God allowing time to prove that Man could never reach the level of righteousness demanded by the law through his own efforts of obeying the law. That's exactly what the first four chapters of Romans are all about. And when he had demonstrated that man's attempts at righteousness through law and through keeping the law was a complete and total failure, he brought in his second secret weapon, the righteousness of God through divine revelation, through faith and not through obedience. Well, let's look at this last section here, starting in verse 17. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as had been told to him, so shall your offering offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I don't think we should ever begin to imply, however, that there's no inward conflict with doubt in Abraham's mind. The text simply uh, suggests that his faith triumphed over what looked like supposed difficulties. I mean, when he looked at himself and he looked at Sarah and he saw how much time had gone by, you know, he could have just gone, well, that's absolutely hopeless. That's what it means to believe against hope. It was hopeless, and yet he still believed God. It's hard to imagine that Abraham never had any conflict. I mean, think about it. You know, he's saying to himself, well, here I am having a conversation with uh, the unseen one, and he's telling me how things are going to be in spite of the fact that they look completely contrary to that. And yet he's believing in the person of God because of the character of God that's revealed in the Revelation. Abraham believed that God would make his dead body alive and call into existence those things which were not yet existing, namely the heir that God promised would come from the union of he and Sarah, and he would bring that into existence. And so what he believed was that God would indeed accomplish what he had promised and set out to do. And because he believed God was able to accomplish what he said he would do, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And Abraham would not have believed God if he had looked at his own reality of his own situation over God's promise. You know, you almost got to wonder if God didn't take him outside to look at the stars and kind of go, look, forget the, the, the idea of the dead body and no sex and all that. Just forget that. Look up here. This, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is the reality that, that you need to look forward to. He would not have believed if he had considered his own old age or the age of Sarah or the barrenness of her womb as being more trustworthy than the character of God. But he didn't allow the supposed impossibilities from his perspective to have any weight. He didn't fix his mind on the difficulties of the situation. And how many times do we not do that? Had he been weak in faith and allowed himself to dwell on what he thought would be impossible obstacles to the fulfillment of the divine promise, he would have staggered and he would have been unfaithful. Let's look at this last promise, okay? The single promise of God depends on our walking humbly with him because of the certainty of the character of God. That's what this whole chapter is about. It's not that Abraham saw the promise. He didn't clearly understand, you know, the whole promise. He saw the character of God and he saw that that was trustworthy and that's what he believed and that's what made him walk in faith. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. Folks, we should be amazed at these verses, that Paul would include this in here for us. As if to say, look, it's no different for anyone. It's just like it was for Abraham, just like it was for him. That's the way that it is for us. If our faith is in the God who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead like Abraham, we share in the same promises promised to Abraham. 
But let's remember a couple of things here, too. I'm pretty sure the words Jesus Christ never fell out of the lips of Abraham. We only understand the fulfillment of the promise being in Jesus through the multiple revelations that were given to us in the New Testament, not through the Old Testament narratives. Abraham never had the whole picture of what the promise included. But what he did have was this picture, that God, the unseen one, in the revelation of himself, is so completely trustworthy, and therefore his promises can be trusted, and for that reason alone, you and I can walk just like Abraham walked. Abraham believed God, and at once, when the call came to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he got up and he left. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what country was to be given to him. He didn't know about the forgiveness of sins and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't insist on knowing, well, how long is the journey going to be? Uh, where am I going to wind up? Uh, what's going to be here at the end of the journey? How profitable is it going to be for me to do this? How can I really trust in what you're saying? Quietly, without doubt or hesitation, and without question or assurance of anything to come. We have no assurances, folks, except for the promise and the character of God. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. He rose and he cut the ties that bound him to his old home and he was off. This is the kind of faith that we should have whenever God calls us or is leading us. Kind of makes sense now of this quote I read from Kierkegaard long ago where he said, well, if God is leading us into the fire, it's better to go into the fire. It's a whole lot better to go there with him than to decide it would be safer to abandon him and walk without him heading the other way, even if it is into the fire, because he's leading you. But, you know, folks, we we walk in faith even in the bad days. Some of those days are going to look pretty bad. We don't, by the way, preach a prosperity gospel here. We don't tell you that, well, if you put your seed faith in, God is guaranteed to bless you. And if you don't get the blessing we think you should get, then your faith is kind of weak. That's, that's not the gospel either. Jesus promised that if you follow him in this world, you can be guaranteed of having tribulation. Because the world has a totally different perspective and a direction that it wants to go in. It knows what's good and right and sound, not Jesus. We should be thankful, by the way, for the blessings and the misfortunes when we're walking by faith. Because God brings them all. We don't forget the days of our troubles or pretend that they didn't happen. You know, when we had the car accident or when we lost all the money in the investment or when we had this long sickness or we had to go back into the hospital because it had to get corrected because of what wasn't anticipated. But listen, folks, don't be surprised if unexpected misfortune turns out to be fortunate in some way you never planned when you were walking by faith. I want to just share with you a minute something that happened to me. Several years ago, I was working for eight years at a very large nursery in, in Fall Creek. 
and I was the inventory guy there. And one day in August, after I'd been there for eight years, out of the blue, I walked in at 3.30, and nobody was in the office. I thought, hmm, it's kind of weird. We don't leave until 4.30. So I'm entering this information in the inventory into the computer, and the, the owner comes up and says, Rick, you got a second? I said, sure. He starts to walk off, and immediately I knew. That was it for me. I'm done. He's going to fire me. So we walk into the conference room, and he's sitting there with the other co-owner. And he says, well, Rick, this is your last day. Here's your departing check. Here's a letter of reference. And Rick, if I were you, I'd get a lawyer. And I looked at him. I said, well, why do I need a lawyer, Dave? Well, Rick, you better get a lawyer. I said, well, Dave, I've been here for eight years, and I'm working at will with you. And I have no antagonism towards you whatsoever. In fact, you guys have been very gracious to me. You've provided for me. I have no anger of any kind with you. And the other gentleman that was sitting there was co-owner. He said, you mean to tell me, Rick, you're not going to be like angry and enraged and, 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 you know, throw a scene? And I said, oh, so that's why you had everybody leave early? Because you thought I was going to have a scene because you let me go today? I said, you know, Dave, it's very, very disheartening that you've known me for eight years and know me so little. I said, you know, I look at this completely different than probably a lot of people do and definitely the way that you do. But I believe eight years ago the Lord gave me this job. And I believe just now he took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And they were like, what? (laughs) And and (laughs) it, it gets better or worse. So... I went back to my cubby and started cleaning out the stuff on my desk. And I had had no warning this was going to happen. Suddenly I get a phone call from a friend of my son's. And my son and some friends had been camping up at um, some campground near, the, near there. And this friend of my son said, Mr. Brownell, you better come and get your son. I said, why? He's totally drunk. He's completely drunk. He can't drive. So I put my stuff in my car and I went up and I, I just... Loved my son. Didn't say anything about being fired. Just went back home. So, you know, Sheila walks into the house and she goes, Well, how was work today? (laughs) And I went, Well, we got some talking to do. But here's the catcher. That was on a Friday. On Monday afternoon, I got a phone call from one of the guys there at work. And I had been witnessing to him over and over again, and just completely no interest whatsoever in Jesus. None. And it didn't matter what I said, what I did, no interest. So he says to me, Rick, I I heard they let you go. I'm, I'm just really saddened by that. You know, I went to Greg, and I said, well, how did he react? And Greg said, well, it was really weird. He said, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and, uh, This is what he said to me on the phone. He goes, Rick, you know, after eight years, I I think I finally get it. I get what faith is. I get what it is. And I was just like, wow. (laughs) I mean, sometimes we look at ourselves and we think, well, this is about me. But sometimes it's not about us. I mean, it took that to happen in my response, which would have been normal if I hadn't been trying to evangelize him and talk to him about Jesus. And he looks at me and says, he says to me on the phone, yeah, 
I get it, man. It's about trusting and believing in God, isn't it? I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. Listen, folks, when we, when we focus on our immediate situation, we very often forget the amazing promises out in front of us. The day of coming great joy when everything is made a right. The whole world is made a right. When, when faith makes everything work again. When, when the chaos in life turns into a, a gracious joy. The richest of blessings are coming and the divine promise of complete forgiveness right now and way out ahead of us. When we focus on now, we often forget not only that God, what he has already done for us, but we forget just what God really requires of us. And our focus should never allow us to forget what God has been calling each of us to do. And you know what, folks? It's not about law-keeping. You know, Jesus said this very, very clearly. In, in kind of an unusual spot, he's chastising the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. He says, you guys, you know what you do? You think somehow righteousness is gained by taking a little anise and getting the right number of grains. And then taking the cumin powder and just getting exactly the right amount. And then taking just the right number of leaves of the mint and saying, there you go, Lord, give me your righteousness. And Jesus says one thing. You know what it is too, don't you? The weightier matters of the law are these. Justice. Love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what's required. It's not law-keeping. It's trusting in God. Trusting that no matter what comes up ahead, that we're trusting the character of God to lead us where he says we need to go. And you know what I, I sense, folks? I sense the Lord is saying that through all the doctrine and all the law explaining in the book of Romans and all the thinking and all the theology, God's saying, I know, I know, I know. Get your eyes off your own experience and be patient. He's saying, I know, I know what it looks like. I know sometimes it's not going to look very good, but you know what? Remember my promise and be steadfast. And I know, I know, folks, listen, be patient, be steadfast, but remember who I am and be faithful. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us because you are so good. Your love and mercy are gracious to us. Father, thank you for pouring it out to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for explaining to us the distinction between keeping law and living in faith. Father, we just pray that your spirit work in our hearts right now and in the days to come to keep your promise in front of us in your character And Father, help us as we sing and lift up your name right now in the gracious character of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.